Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode, we talk about a village in Tamil Nadu that has become an important archaeological site and a hotspot for Tamil culture. We also talk about how the artificial sweetener aspartame will soon be listed as possibly carcinogenic by the WHO. But first, we talk about Manipur. Since the 3rd of May, the state has been witnessing violent clashes between its two key ethnic communities, the dominant Methes and the Kuki tribe. Till now, more than 100 people have been killed in the clashes and the state's law and order has completely collapsed. Last week, after his visit to Manipur, we had spoken to Indian Express's Deepti Mantiwari and he told us how civilians have armed themselves and the security establishment and political leaders are just not able to control the situation. But he now says that the state is facing a new problem. Based on ground reports, insurgents in the area both from the Mete and the Kuki groups, have been helping civilians carry out violent confrontations. To know more about the situation, my colleague Ucha Sarman speaks to Deeptiman in this segment. So Deeptiman, considering that we're talking about insurgents, could you tell us how big of a problem insurgency has been in Manipur? See, the state has seen insurgency for several decades and uh, there have been three different kind of insurgencies. One has been the insurgency of the valley-based groups, which usually called Maitai insurgency. The other has been the Kuki insurgency and the third has been the Naga insurgency. The three main population groups which are there in Manipur have all been involved in insurgency. The Meitei insurgency has largely focused on complete separation of Manipur from India and fought for sovereignty of Manipur, that is make it an independent nation. Similarly, the Naga insurgency has been about the greater Nagalim and independent Nagaland, which would also include areas of Manipur. Kuki insurgency, on the other hand, has been for self-determination and you know having some sort of separate statehood sort of thing for Kukis. So, there has been a long-drawn insurgency in this state. Thousands of people have been killed in that period. And this has gone on for way too long. Only in the past one decade, we have seen some sort of peace prevailing in the state with uh, Maitai insurgency groups being, you know, losing public support and being relegated to the fringes of Manipur. And now their camps run from largely from Myanmar. But largely, the valley per se has been peaceful. Similarly, Kuki insurgent groups, you know, signed a peace agreement sort of suspension of operation agreement with the government, which happened in 2005, then it was formed up in 2008, and then, you know, it has gone on since then. So, that area also has been largely peaceful. And the NSC and IM, which has been leading the Naga insurgency, we all know, has been in a ceasefire agreement with the government. So, that has largely been the case until now. Right, and after this relative calm, you write that these insurgents are now helping the mobs on both sides. So, tell us what we know about this so far. Look, the greatest 
fuel to an insurgent group is disaffection among the people because without public support no insurgency can actually survive so insurgent groups also see this clear division between two communities as an opportunity to shore up their popularity so on both sides there have been the su groups which are the kuki insurgent groups which are in a suspension of operation agreement with the government su groups have been found to be aiding kukis in this ethnic clash and of late what has been witnessed is the maitei insurgent groups who had been pushed out of the valley and were operating out of myanmar have now come into the valley and become sort of not only just part of the mobs which are raiding villages but also people who are providing weapons ammunition and even being part of the mobs and their training programs like there is evidence that some members of arambai tengol which is a metei radical group and has been at the forefront of clashes with kuki groups in this ongoing ethnic clash some of their members have been trained by these metei insurgent group cadres so these are quite worrying signs that on both sides uh, insurgent groups have gotten involved and uh, as far as uh, our understanding goes and the reports that we are receiving from security agencies we cannot say that there is a direct involvement in the sense that unlf or pla or su groups are at the forefront of these attacks no these attacks are still being carried out by civilian militarized mobs but they are being actively being aided by these insurgent groups Okay, and do we know what the security establishments are doing to counter this problem? Well, the best that the security establishment can do is arrest these guys because some of them are banned outfits. At least the Imphal Valley-based uh, insurgent groups, uh, the Sioux groups are bound by an agreement where there are certain ground rules that they have to follow. Their guns are supposed to be counted and in a camp. Their cadres are supposed to be in a camp. So if their cadres are getting involved with cookie mobs or if their guns are being used in any manner, then strict action has to be taken against them. And uh, Union Home Minister Amit Shah, who was on a visit to Manipur during his visit, he even warned Sioux groups that if they do not follow the ground rules then the agreement will be considered null and void so this was a very stark and clear warning to these groups at the same time indian army has been arresting these unlf cadres and kykl cadres who are you know operating within the valley so action is being taken at some level but it is very disturbing that the trust deficit between the people in the valley and the armed forces has stooped so low that people are revolting against the army and not letting it do its job and this is something that should be very concerning and both indian army and the government needs to work on it so that some sort of confidence is instilled among the people that the indian army is there to ensure their safety and not to jeopardize it right in deepthi man the armed forces including the indian army have had a very troublesome history with the people in the state and now considering that the civilians there are armed right now how challenging is the situation for the forces look we have to also understand the trust deficit comes from a long history of human rights violations at least allegations of human rights violations that have been leveled against the indian army which has been there in uh, manipur for a long long time and wherever there has been afspa you know there have been such allegations against the army so in 2004 5 
I remember there was this massive protest following the murder of Thangjam Manorma and uh, women who are called Mirapaibis there, they disrobed and walked to the army headquarters there and with a banner which said Indian Army come rape us. So there has been a long history of discord between Indian armed forces and the civilian population. And I mean, civilian populations keep alleging that if they are arresting somebody, they'll probably kill them in an encounter or whatever. So that confidence building at this time is all the more important. So that is why we are seeing that whenever Indian army is going into an operation, you know, women are mobbing them and not letting them go ahead. Similarly, they're not getting much cooperation during their search and combing operations. So these are some of the difficulties that the Indian army or other armed forces have to surmount to be able to deal with this problem. And because the civilian population is heavily armed, so it becomes more difficult because you could have gunfire and people might get killed on either side. So that is why, in fact, the kind of combing operation or search operation that we were expecting to happen is actually not happening. The government is still relying on persuading people to surrender their arms. And that too is not happening in great numbers actually because people are insecure and they do not want to surrender their arms. And Deepthiman, in cases like this, when things turn violent, we often see that people's initial demands get delegitimized. So is that also a concern now? See, it's so complicated that right now I don't think people are thinking about whether their demands are getting delegitimized or not. There is just too much anger in Manipur society at this moment on either side. So, legitimization of demand is generally a concern when you're making a peaceful protest. Okay, right now nothing is peaceful in Manipur. So, whether involvement of insurgent people are fighting for their lives... Right now, they don't care whether their demands are legitimate or not. Right now, they want whether they will be safe or not. So if, say, Maitei population has a belief or understanding that there are militant groups which are helping cookies, they don't see any reason why they should not be helped by insurgent groups of the Maitei's. So there is some sort of a public support for this kind of a thing because people are just very insecure and primarily because the state has collapsed. And next we talk about a small village in Tamil Nadu that over the years has become a hotspot for Tamil history and culture. This village is Kiladi, which is about 12 kilometers away from Madurai. And back in 2013, archaeologists excavating there came upon findings that have now changed our understanding about what we previously knew about Tamil history and the second urbanization that took place in the subcontinent. Earlier this year, close to the main archaeological site, a museum was made open to the public and which has been garnering unprecedented attention. Recently, Indian Express's Adrija Roy Chaudhary had visited the site and she now joins us to talk about its significance. Adrija, for those who may not already know about it, could you talk about why Kiladi, this nondescript village, has become this hub for Tamil history? So to answer your question, let me first, you know, begin by telling you a little bit about Kiladi. So this is this small village that is located around like 15 kilometers away from Madurai in Tamil Nadu's Shivaganga district. And sometime in 2013, the Archaeological Survey of India, ASI, it had conducted a survey here and it began excavating this village. And then that is when it found this large number of artifacts, such as, you know, a large brick structure 
which they later realized was from, you know, was evidence of a textile industry. Then artifacts from a ceramic industry, iron objects, carnelian beads, which later on being studied further, revealed that they were from Rome and other parts of the world, which proved that there was trade going on here. A lot of gold ornaments, ties and other objects for leisure time burial methods, you know, these large urns carrying skeletons and other, you know, food remnants, also remnants of agricultural activity. And most importantly, a large number of potsherds, basically, you know, like parts of pottery with writing on it. This is writing in the Tamil Brahmi script. Mostly these are names of people are probably these are people who at some point owned these utensils. And we still have this tradition of writing our names on utensils. You'll see that happening in a lot of old households as well. So that is, you know, similar kind of evidence they found. But the evidence of writing was very key over here because once these artifacts were carbon dated and scientific testing was done on them, it revealed that they are around 2500 years old, which is roughly around the 6th century BCE. Right. And what was the significance of this, of finding evidence, as you say, of a textile industry, of agriculture, these pot shirts and even objects of leisure that dated so far back? So what these findings did, it proved that Tamil civilization is much older than what was previously thought to be. So till now, our history textbooks, they told us that the first urbanization is seen as the Harappan civilization. The second urbanization, as we have learned from our history textbooks, happened sometime between 600 and 500 BC. And it was concentrated in the middle of the Gangetic Plains in the north. That is where, you know, a lot of townships, you know, urban planning comes around. It was also believed until now that South India entered this phase of history much later, sometime in the 3rd century BC, which is 300 years later than what was happening in the Gangetic Plains in the north. This is what we have known of urban history of South India till now. What the findings of at Killary did was changed this notion and told Tamil people that look, our civilization is much older and that it is not as if like the initial urban development was concentrated only in the north and that of course, you know, brought a lot of historical pride in this region. And, you know, this small village has now become a must-visit tourist destination for Tamil people. And what is the reason that for a while we continued to believe that the second urbanization happened in the north? Is it because we did not have anything to prove otherwise? So here's the thing, you know, archaeological excavations in India since independence has mostly been concentrated in the north. And one of the big reasons for that is that once the partition happened, the two main sites of the Indus Valley civilization, which is known to be the main starting point of civilization in the Indian subcontinent, the Indus Valley civilization, the main sites of this, the Indus sites, Harappa and Mohenjo-daro, they went to Pakistan. Even though, you know, during the partition, what the artifacts from these two sites, they were sort of equally divided between the two countries. But since the sites themselves had gone to Pakistan, there was this urgency felt by the Indian government that we need to find in the sites in India. And since the Indus Valley civilization was largely concentrated in the north, so you see that, you know, over and again, the excavations were being carried out in the north in states like Rajasthan, Haryana. This is where maximum excavations were being carried out. Since, you know, that kind of concentration was not there happening in the south, we just knew much lesser about south and that gap continued for a very long time. So Mr. Amarnath Ramakrishna, who first had surveyed and he led the excavation at Kiladi, 
He told me that until 2001, there was no ASI excavation branch in the south at all. It's only in 2001 that the first ASI excavation branch opened up in Bangalore. So till then, only excavations being carried out in the south were by the state departments of archaeology and by the university departments, which of course, you know, did not have this kind of funding that the ASI had to carry out large-scale excavations. Quite naturally, you know, our understanding of civilization in Indian history was largely dominated was by what was happening in the north. Yeah, and you write that when archaeologists were planning to start large-scale excavations in Tamil Nadu, they decided upon Kiladi because of its proximity to the ancient city of Madurai which experts are also really interested in, but because it's an urban center and also a tourist hub, I imagine it's hard to conduct an excavation there, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Because Madurai over here is like a living, thriving city. So it's impossible to, you know, dig up a city and, you know, carry out an excavation over here. So the next best thing to do was to find a spot that is very close to Madurai. And Keeleri proved to be that one spot which could throw up more evidence of when exactly civilization began in Tamil Nadu. Yeah, and while writing about Keeleri, you also write about the Sangam Corpus, this collection of songs and poems that were the product of a literary gathering that happened in the Tamil region in ancient times. Could you talk about how this corpus, this text, finds a resonance at Keeleri? So here's the thing, you know, one of the big factors why archaeologists and the general public are so excited about Keeleri is because they say that it provides material evidence for everything that is written in the Sangam literature. And one of the historians I spoke to, Mr. A. Muthukrishnan, he told me that for the longest time, it was believed that the Sangam corpus, it was nothing more than fiction. But then, you know, the songs and poems of the Sangam literature, they narrate a lot about Tamil life as it existed some, you know, 2500 years back. They talk about the climate, the rivers, the kind of activities that people engaged in, leisure time activities, the kind of professions that people were engaged in. It does talk about all this. But till now, we did not have any material evidence to prove what the Sangam texts are saying. What the Kilari findings again do is to provide that evidence of the Sangam texts. One of the archaeological officers I had spoken to, he was giving me examples of the poems. So for instance, you know, he told me that the iron smelting tools that they found at Kilari, there are poems and songs in the Sangam literature that actually talk about the same process of how iron should be, how one needs to go about the iron smelting process. So he's like, you know, this is how we find resonance. Then there are songs and poems that talk about trade, that talk about objects that are coming in from Rome, from Mesopotamia, from regions in the north. And you see that in the kind of carnelian beads and other objects that have come from these regions. So this is how the two, the findings at Kilari are being connected to whatever is written in the Sangam literary corpus. Right, so the findings from Keeleri not only give us new information about what was going on back then, but it also makes us see the information that we already had in a different light. Yeah, absolutely. And it also shows, you know, what part of our historical identity that people are most excited about. Like, I'm told that a lot of people have started revisiting the Sangam texts, the buying books carrying the Sangam songs and poetry and revisiting them in light of the Keeleri excavations. One of the archaeologists I spoke to, Dr. Nayanjot Lahiri, who is also one of the most renowned archaeologists in India, she mentioned something to me that every time a site in Tamil Nadu which has resonance of Sangam texts is excavated, there is a lot more excitement around it. And it's similar to say when excavations are carried out in sites like Hastinapur or Purana Kila, 
you know, which find resonance in the Ramayana and Mahabharat, which are again very special to our cultural identities. Again, people are very excited about these findings. So similarly in Tamil Nadu also, every time we find something that give, provides a connection with the Sangam era, people are immediately very excited about, you know, what new can we find about our historical identity. And so how popular would you say Keeladi is right now? So, you know, the number of people coming into Keeleri, a lot of officials and archaeologists would say that it's actually quite an unusual number. As per what the officials told me, a footfall of around 1500 is the average during the weekdays. And on weekends, we see about 4000 people dropping by, both to see the museum that has come up here earlier this year and also the archaeological site, which is about a kilometer away. Interestingly, you know, there are these small cafes and carts selling lemonades and all that have come up around the museum and the archaeological site as well, which is only a sign of, you know, the kind of commercialization that is coming up over here. In fact, you know, one of the guys selling lemonade in a cart close right next to the excavation site whom I had spoken to, you know, he had told me that he's very scared that, you know, with time more such carts will come up in this area and he'll have to share his profits, you know. So because clearly the villagers, the people living in this area also see the potential in the, the archaeological dig going on over here. Right. And we understand that a lot of school students come to visit the site, especially since the state board has included Keeladi as part of the syllabus. And you know, there is no doubt that the findings at Keeladi are significant. But before Keeladi, was there any proof that this kind of civilization existed in South India during this period that we're talking about? So, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, these kind of excavations did come about earlier as well. Two sites that are very important over here, as what again Professor Nayanjot Lahiri had told me, this is Porunthal and Kodu Manal, which were excavated sometime from 2009 onwards by K. Rajan. And she mentions both these sites in her book as well and says that, you know, these two sites were in fact a landmark moment for our understanding of Indian history. Because again, you know, these sites had provided evidence of writing in the Tamil Brahmi script. And, you know, they did provide evidence of the fact that, you know, civilization existed here from 600 BC onwards. So uh, much of what Keeladi is telling us were found in these sites as well. But I guess a couple of things happened at Keeladi, which is, you know, of importance and why it became such a big thing as well. One, of course, that, you know, this is one of the first archaeological excavations happening under the camera. So people are going here with their mobile phones. They are posting about it on social media. So it becomes a big thing. You know, a lot of people have gotten to know about it. Mostly that is not how archaeological excavations are carried out. You know, when archaeologists excavate a site, they write a report. They're very quiet, silent about it. They go back to their offices and, you know, file a report about it. And that's about it. But in case of Keeleri, it became a social media uproar as well. The second thing that I would say is the proximity to Madurai. Maybe, you know, again, had it been a very remote site, very far away from any city, that number of people would not be able to go here. Right. The fact that Madurai is a tourist spot certainly helps. But you also write that there is some politics at play here as well, which has led to Keeladi becoming this popular. Could you talk a bit about that? 
So this site initially was excavated by the Archaeological Survey of India, which is under the central government. Sometime in 2017, you know, after around four years of excavations, the superintending archaeologist, Mr. Amarnath Ramakrishna, he was transferred. What the ASI says is that these are routine transfers that happen. But the moment that transfer happened and the ASI immediately after that dropped this site as well. So once that happened, there was a lot of uproar around why this site has been dropped. There was also this feeling that, you know, the reason the central government is no longer interested is because it is showing that, you know, this site is just as important as sites in the north and the artifacts here are just as significant as, say, the Harappan civilization. So there was a lot of uproar around the whole politics about this. And the state archaeology department of Tamil Nadu then took on this site and continued excavating it. Given the fact that, you know, there's a lot of controversy around this as well. Again, you know, there was a lot of attempt by the state government as well to establish the significance of this site. So they built a museum here. Once you visit the museum, there is this 15 minute documentary that you will first see, which is very conscious about establishing how Keeladi is central to Tamil identity. So, you know, that kind of tug of war between the state and the central government also played a role in ensuring that the site becomes this big archaeological sensation. And in the end, we talk about aspartame. Yesterday, the news agency Reuters reported that the cancer research arm of the World Health Organization will soon list the popular sugar substitute aspartame as possibly carcinogenic to humans. Quoting unnamed sources, Reuters said that the listing by the International Agency for Research on Cancer is likely going to happen next month. Aspartame is one of the world's most common artificial sweeteners and is used in a wide range of things like diet soft drinks, sugar-free chewing gum, sugar-free ice cream and sugar-free breakfast cereals. Now, in the past, a number of studies have repeatedly said that aspartame does not pose a risk for cancer. But this listing by the WHO, if it comes, will be a break from those earlier findings. And according to Reuters, will pit it against the food industry and the regulators. It is also important to note that last month, the WHO had made a recommendation against using artificial sweeteners to lose weight and to prevent lifestyle diseases such as diabetes. Back then, we had spoken to Indian Express's Anona Dutt about this recommendation. And here's what she had told us. So the WHO has said that people should not consume artificial sweeteners to try and reduce weight, body mass index, or have a diet which is more suitable to prevent uh, lifestyle diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, etc. And they have based this uh, recommendation on 283 different studies. They have looked at, you know, adult population, children, women, what happens uh, when they are consuming these artificial sweeteners. And what they found is that in the short term, yes, it led to weight loss and a lower BMI. But that was mostly because uh, people were already consuming sugars and they replaced it with a low calorie version of sugar. So it went down. But then these studies also linked the artificial sweeteners with increase in BMI in the long run, increase in the risk of type 2 diabetes, increase in the risk of cardiovascular diseases and cancers. Exactly what people are trying to prevent. So there's no benefit of consuming these things in the long run. 
and the short term uh, you know loss in weight it doesn't offset any of the risks and what is the reason that the who has made this recommendation only for healthy people as in people without diabetes what is the reason behind that so here we've had a divided opinion so far with some doctors uh, saying that you know diabetics do have higher risk of say a heart attack or a stroke than the general population so if the artificial sweeteners are in fact linked to higher incidences or like higher risk of these diseases then shouldn't diabetics also stop consuming the artificial sweeteners whereas people on the other side say it does give the benefit of consuming fewer calories to the diabetics who should anyway be restricting their sweet intake whether it's from sugars or from artificial sweeteners they shouldn't be consuming too much of it so once in a while in moderation consuming artificial sweetener they think should be more beneficial than consuming sugars and you know like having one or two pellets of these uh, normally available artificial sweeteners if you have that with tea or coffee one or two a day some people think that's okay okay so for people who are listening to this segment and who might be consuming artificial sweeteners on a regular or a semi regular basis what should they take away from this should they just stop having artificial sweeteners so i mean of course if you're having diet soda replacing it with like a full sugar version doesn't help of course but uh, in general population level we have to cut down the level of sweets things that we are consuming and we have known this for a while that you know the more sweet you have you have obesity which leads to insulin resistance which leads to diabetes so there's a need to cut down on sugars but replacing it with artificial sweetener is not the way to go what you have to do and what uh, who has also said that from an early age you should reduce sweet things in the diet your diet should be such that it shouldn't have sweet things and when you're craving sweet things then you can have the sweeter fruits instead of you know having a cake or whatever like a dessert you were listening to three things by the indian express today's show was written and produced by me shashank bhargav with help from utsha sarman and was edited and mixed by suresh pawar if you like the show then do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast you can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it share it with a friend or someone in your family it's the best way for people to get to know about us you can also tweet us at express audio and write to us at podcast@indianexpress.com at 